Now take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, the book of Ephesians, and uh, Ephesians chapter 5, as we uh, once again look at God's Word. And if you're visiting with us today, and this is sort of a new experience for you, welcome. Uh, we, we're, we are working our way through this, uh, one of the books of the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible. This one happens to be called Ephesians, and it's a letter that was written by um, one of the apostles to, to a church to help them know what it means to walk as a Christian. And so uh, hopefully as you uh, settle in with us this morning, you'll quickly come alongside and uh, get caught up with where we are. Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verses 1 to um, uh, about 8 and a half. Um, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not associate with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are, in, now you are light in the Lord. So Father, we thank you now for your word. Uh, speak to us, I pray, uh, in the amazing name of Jesus. Amen. It is uh, Valentine's Day tomorrow which I just sort of remembered today in the first service. And uh, we have some flowers in there, and I have dibs on them after tonight's service. So, uh, um, but I I thought it's rather appropriate to be talking about walking in love um, as we approach uh, Valentine's Day, because not only do we want to walk in love in a way that reflects our great God, but we want to receive the love that he gives to us. And I think that's equally important. And that's some of the things that we begin to find in this passage. And so I think as Paul helps us know what it means to receive the love of God and walk in the love of God, he begins by wanting us just to uh, embrace the reality which we find ourselves in a little bit more firmly. And it's a fairly simple reality. He wants us to live as a child of God. Um, live as a child of God. And he begins that, that chapter 5 with those words, um, Therefore... Be imitators of God. That's our model. We are to mimic God. Uh, And you think off the top of your head, well, that seems pretty difficult. How in the world am I to mimic God? How am I to imitate God, who is this one that we read about from Isaiah, who is this one that is holy and perfect and just and righteous? How do I imitate God? Is it even possible? Well, it is possible because there has been a work that has taken place in everyone who is a child of God, and they have now been changed from the inside out. We've been talking about that. When you become a Christian, you're born again. When you become a Christian, you are renewed, made new from the inside out. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit, or God, comes to live inside of you. So by nature now, you are becoming like God. You are being created in the likeness of God. So it's not a stretch for Paul to say to us any longer, imitate God, because in fact we are children of God. And you see, children naturally imitate their fathers. 
one of the things that I learned as a dad um, when it came to those times that I had to discipline my kids, I quickly realized that often the things that I was needing to discipline them for were things that I was doing. It was the tone of voice that I was using when I spoke to my wife. It was the way that I talked about other drivers as we drove down the road in the car. It was, and I always talk nice things about other drivers, um, particularly in Parksville as I drive down the road. Um, But uh, they would pick up my intonations. They would pick up my language. Every once in a while I would come home and they would have my tools out and they would be trying to mimic me or they'd have a fishing rod out and they'd want to imitate dad. We'd go for walks every once in a while in the snow and you know as dads we would normally have a a longer gait and you look behind you and you see your kid trying to jump up and get in your footsteps because they want to walk in daddy's footsteps. And so it's natural for children to want to imitate their fathers. Well, in the same way, it ought to be natural for us as children of God to want to imitate our Father. And so Paul tells us, imitate God. Uh, The second thing that he he tells us, which I think is one of the amazing phrases in, in the Bible, but he tells us, he says, imitate God as beloved children, as dearly loved children. It's a phrase that reminds us of our status before God. Uh, Many times in the book of Ephesians, we're reminded that God is our Father. That we have access now to our Father because of what Jesus has done for us. That God, our Father, has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And so we have this Father who now calls us beloved or dearly loved children. And I use that phrase fairly often here at um, PFBC. I will call you beloved or I will call you loved ones. And there are times when I might go two or three weeks without actually using that phrase. And I'm surprised at how many people come up to me at the, after a service and say, um, why aren't you calling us beloved anymore? Why aren't you calling us loved ones anymore? And I think what's going on, and it's what I want to communicate to us, is that it's, it's a way of hearing God say to us, I love you. It's a way of hearing God say to us, you're my dearly loved children, even though we haven't been Good. He still loves us. Even when we have been good, He still loves us. And so this phrase, um, dearly beloved, is such an important phrase to fix in our hearts and minds because it's God's way of saying to us again, you are my dearly loved children. And you find it in significant times in Jesus' ministry. At the point of His baptism, at the time when he's about now to, to walk in, in, and will continue to walk in obedience to God in a way that would, would test every fiber of his being, as he comes out of the water, God says to him, Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And I thought maybe that would be a great phrase, actually, when we baptize people here as they come out of the water. And now, beloved of God, walk with God. So it's a way that God affirmed his love for his son as he was about to enter in obedience. It's also an affirmation that we hear from God when Jesus is about to go to the cross on the Mount of Transfiguration. And when, when he's surrounded by a couple of disciples and, and, and his deity shows through and God speaks from the heavens and he says, This is my beloved son. And so it's this, it's this, this expression of dear affection And love for us as God's kids. And we need to grasp that, loved ones. 
We need to realize that we are the loved of God because what it helps us remember is it helps us remember that our identity is rooted or or that our obedience and our imitation is rooted in our identity and what Christ has done for us. Because Because of what Christ has done for us, we are called God's dearly loved children. In other words, then, what happens when God commands our obedience that is not the foundation of our acceptance before God. Neither is that the foundation of God's loving us. See, God loves us before we were ever born. God loves us before we ever did anything good or bad. God simply loves us in Christ Jesus. And one of the terrible things that happens is that, is that our experience of our natural relationship with our Father somehow gets transferred into our relating with our Heavenly Father. And one person I was reading this week says, We obey because we are loved. We are not loved because we obey. That is so critical for us to get into our hearts and minds because many of you here this morning grew up or are growing up in homes where you are trying or tried to earn your father's love. You tried to please your father with the hopes that one day he might say, I love you. With the hopes that one day he would just throw his arms around you and say, you are my loved child. Or, 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 Or you would... You would try and do the best you could on your papers or the best you could on your projects or you'd try and clean up your room or you would try and do something in order to gain approval from your father to have a word of encouragement or something from you. And everything that you did all along the way was an attempt to somehow earn an I love you. Earn a hug, a a, a strong, firm hug. And, and what happens is that if that's our relationship with our earthly father, when we become a Christian, then we transfer that into our relationship with God. And the result is then we're always trying to earn the love of God. And so we obey because we hope that in our obedience, God will somehow love us. But all of us know that our obedience falls short so often. And when our obedience falls short, then we think, oh, God doesn't love me anymore. God's going to walk the other way on now. He's not going to answer my prayer. He's not going to care for me. And it's this vicious thing that comes into our relating to our Heavenly Father, which is so wrong and doesn't have a place in it. You see, what we need to do is we need to understand that we are simply God's dearly beloved. Before we ever did anything right or wrong, He loved us. And He still loves us. And so as we think about that kind of thing, understanding the character of God is so essential if we are to love Him, serve Him, and be like Him. So again, we obey because we are loved, not be, we we are not loved because we obey. The love of our Father precedes and stimulates obedience in our children. We are to forgive and live and love as dearly loved children, imitating the one who is already our Father. And the one who already loves us, not performing to, provide, to bribe God to become our father. This is at the core of what it means to be dearly loved children. It's the father heart of God. We are his dearly loved ones. And so Paul begins by just reminding us of the reality that we have. That we are those who are to imitate our father. And we are to imitate him because we are dearly loved children. 
And that, that love that he has poured out in our lives should cause us to just want to walk in a way that reflects the love that we have received. But not only are we to live as a child of God, but Paul reminds us that we're to live as the child of God. Do you notice what he says there? He says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. What are the general contours of walking in love? Well, the first one is certainly forgiveness, which we find at the end of chapter 4. But the second one is to imitate Christ. To walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering before God. Sometimes, and and it's important to note that 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 their um, walk in love is a command. We are commanded to walk in love. And, and some of you might be going through your heads and saying, well, how can you command love? How can you command somebody to love another person? Well, I think it's primarily because love initially is an act of obedience. It's an act of the will. And that if, 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 our, if love is primarily defined by feelings then circumstances or, or, or issues that come into our life will affect those feelings and we might fall out of love and we might no longer say, I love that person. But when we understand that love is an act of the will, love is an act of obedience, and when we engage our wills and when we obey, then the proper feelings come along and they attach themselves to those acts, then we get it right. And so he says, we are commanded to love. Husbands, love your wife. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That is, that is our model for love. It's not ooey-gooey feelings. It's not lovey-dovey all the time. Sometimes it's an act of self-sacrifice. Sometimes it's an act of the will. To give ourselves up as a demonstration of our love's love for our wives. And then you read a little bit later about God and it says, And God demonstrated his love to us while we were yet sinners. How did God demonstrate his love? He gave himself through his son to us. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he felt all warm and fuzzy inside. No, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So there's this act of giving it's this act of, 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 it's a response of the will. And, and you, you see this worked out in this way. Um, when Jesus is asked by a bunch of Pharisees and Sadducees, what's the greatest commandment? Do you remember what he says? He says, the first is this, that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. What was that? That was a summary of the first four commands. So our love of God is exhibited by our keeping of his commands. It's an act of the will. It's an act of obedience. And then what does he say? And the second is like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. Does that mean that I feel warm and fuzzy to my neighbor all the time? Does that that mean I like them all the time? No. It means that I will not steal from them. I will not lie to them. I will not commit adultery with their spouse. I will not covet their stuff. And so love is an act. It's an expression of our will. And so that's why he can command love. Because it begins as an act of obedience, as an expression of our will. 
And then the, 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 the neat thing that he says, he says, not only did, did Christ demonstrate his love uh, by giving himself up to us, but he gave himself up as a sacrifice, a fragrant offering to God. Now that takes us back to the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament is the first part of the Bible. And in the Old Testament, about 50 times, it talks about uh, the fact that when, when people brought a sacrifice before God, and that happened a lot. Sometimes they brought a sacrifice because they sinned. Sometimes they brought a sacrifice to fulfill a vow. Sometimes they brought a sacrifice to say thank you. But they would bring a sacrifice before God. And they would lay it on the altar um, uh, there, and then it would be consumed by fire. And as the fire consumed the sacrifice, there would be smoke. And as that smoke went up before, the, before God, it says, and it was a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It was a sweet fragrance before the Lord. And so what Paul is saying is that when we come before the Lord, and as we walk in love, that sometimes, almost all the time, there will be an act of giving or an act of dying that is part of how we please God and how we bring a fragrant offering before God. See, pleasing God matters. But as we learn from Jesus, it involves giving up of oneself. That's an offering. And the dying of another, that's a sacrifice. And so, as one person said, there is no life of love without a degree of giving and dying. Do you understand that? So when it says walk in love, and it's not just a feeling, it's an act of obedience, we understand that sometimes walking in love will have with it a, a, a degree of giving of ourself and of dying to ourself in order that our walking can be a fragrant sacrifice before God. You see, and it, it works it out this way because sometimes I think as Christians, we think that our life is going to be all wonderful. And you know, if you're considering and contemplating Christianity today in a relationship with Jesus, there is no relationship like it. There is no joy, there is no hope, there is, there is no life, there is nothing like it. But sometimes there's misconceptions out there about what that life of obedience looks like. And sometimes we think that, well, when we become a Christian, it all becomes easy. You know, we learned last night, as, as Tony shared with us, that marriage is not easy. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you have a wonderful marriage. And, and in, in that marriage, in order to walk and please God, there is, an, there is a constant need for giving and dying to ourself in order to see that love worked out in our relationship. And so when God, um, doing what is right in a sinful world is not easy. Doing loving God and not the world will bring with it difficulties. Sometimes what God asks us to do is very difficult. Because it's contrary to the direction of the world. It's contrary to what we think we want to do in our own heart. It's contrary to what we think we have the strength to do. But God says, no, give yourself up to me. Offer yourself as a sacrifice. It will be a pleasing aroma to me, and I will be satisfied with what you do. And so it's helpful to understand this as we, as we walk in love, as we're told to do, that our model is Christ. And as Christ walked in love, there was an element of giving and there was an element of dying. And that involved then the pleasing sacrifice before God. And so as you walk in love, know that there will be giving and there will be sacrifice involved. But it will be a sweet fragrance before God. And then he, he goes on. 
Or just, just sort of in summary then, imitation means knowing whose and what we are. We are dearly loved children of God. It's summarized in this single phrase, walk in love. It's demonstrated by our brother Christ who lived in such a way that his life was a fragrant, it was a sweet offering to God. And as we walk through these next verses, it's important for us to understand that because these next verses are tough verses. And these next verses are verses that are going to try and help us understand what it means to walk in love. And sometimes the best way to understand something is to understand what it is not. And so we've tried to just give a little bit of taste to what it means to walk in love. And now we're going to have expanded before us what it means not to walk in love. And this is going to be tough stuff because there are clear warnings in these verses. There are warnings about what characterizes the path of the Gentiles and warnings about the seriousness of sin. And Paul wants to continue to drive home this truth that when you become a Christian, there's a whole new way of living. There's a whole new life that we embrace. There's a whole new transformation that has taken place in us. We are dearly loved children of God. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. So how can we participate in things that are characterized by the kingdom of darkness? And so he says, what does it mean to walk in love? Look at uh, Ephesians verse 3. This is the first tough one. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among the saints. Things that are improper. Things that are improper to walking in love. Sexual immorality, pornea, and impurity together cover every kind of sexual sin. And according to the scripture, any sexual involvement outside of a biblical marriage between a man and a woman is not walking in love. The one involved in a sexual sin and impurity desires to satisfy an appetite by taking what does not belong to them. They take it from somebody else. They take it from another person. They take it from someone who is innocent. It involves satisfying a legitimate desire in an illegitimate way. The Bible speaks very clearly that sex is good. That sex is a gift of God. That sex is God's idea. But He sets the boundaries for it. He is the one who has made us. He knows us best. He knows us how we function best emotionally, spiritually, relationally, and sexually. And we need to learn to trust Christ in the area of our sexuality. And so everything that is outside of the biblical relationship between a man and a woman, anything that we participate in is not walking in love. And added to this, he says, in all covetousness, Covetousness is the sinful desire for what God has withheld from us or from what God has given to another person. And so we, we don't have it. We don't have enough money to buy it. And so we go out and borrow to get it. Or we go out and take what belongs to another person. Or we think in our minds, God, this isn't fair. Why haven't you blessed me this way? Why haven't you given me what you've given them? It's just not right. It's just not fair. And so we covet. And we go behind God's back. And we get what we want in a sinful way. Rather in the way that God has designed to give it to us. It's reflected in our hearts. It's reflected in our balance sheets. It's reflected in our relationships. Covetousness is idolatry. 
It's worshiping the gift rather than the giver. And a telltale sign of such idolatry is a growing discontentment with God's provision for our lives. When we find ourselves talking like, God, you really don't know what I need. God, you really haven't given me enough to to live the way that I want to do. God, you haven't provided me for a holiday in a long time. Whatever it might be, when we start being complaining about God's provision in our lives, it's a telltale sign that idolatry is beginning to get a heart hold in our lives. John writes, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Why these two things together? All manner of sexual impurity and covetousness. Well, I think because both are an offense to love to our neighbor. Both are an offense to the love of God. Both attempt to gain the good things that God gives us in ways that are contrary to God. In essence, both are the consequence of concluding that what God has provided for us is not enough. When either controls us, we conclude that God's provision for our lives is inadequate. Whether we pursue a lust for persons or things, we profess that simply His supply is insufficient and we deny His lordship over that aspect of our life. So Paul says that walking in love is characterized, um, characterized by this phrase, uh, um, it must not even be, or it must not be among you. It's not proper. And not only that, he says, and it must not even be named among you. What do you think he's getting at when he says that? I think he's reminding us of how sin progresses in our lives. I think he's, he's talking about another way sin gets the best of us. A few weeks ago when we talked about the red lizard on our shoulder and we talked about the fact that we looked at the pathology of sin and how sin, uh, how the disease works itself out in one's life. Well, here he's just reminding us again about how sin progresses. It begins with our minds. James 1.14, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. How often has a word or a comment or a reference to something sparked a sinful desire in you? Somebody mentions something in a movie or in a book or on a website, and, and it just it, it sticks on you like those burrs when you're hiking. And, and it just somehow, it fastens in your memory. And then you go home and you, you check out that website. Or you go to the library and you get that book. Or you go to the rental store and you get that DVD. Because there has been something that has been sparked in you because somebody has said, there's a scene in this movie that I don't think you should watch, but it's a good movie otherwise. Oh, I'll go get the movie. because No, you get the movie because there's a scene that you want to see in that movie. I think this is what he's talking about when it says it shouldn't even be named amongst us. We should never underestimate the power of our words to set somebody off or ourselves off on the path of sinful ways. Indulging sexual impurities of speech, thought, or entertainment will feed the power of sin in our lives and in the lives of others. And so he says, don't even talk about this stuff. If you want to starve sin, stop talking about it. Stop thinking about it. You know, I've wondered this sometimes, and I I think testimonies are such a beautiful thing. But there's a very careful line in testimonies where we move from generalities to specifics. 
and we cause sinful thoughts to rise up in somebody's heart. There's very dangerous temptations in counseling situations when, when somebody's sharing an issue that they're going through. And, and it's, it's my practice to the best of my ability to stop at generalities. I don't need to know the details. I don't need to know how it's worked out in its full because in doing that, you create an interest or you spark something in your own heart and mind. And so even when you go for coffee with one another and you're working through tough issues, be careful in your language and in the way that you share that you do not spark within somebody a temptation towards sin. And so he says there are things that... that, 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 that um, How did I put it there? Things that are improper. Secondly, there are things that are out of place. If those are the things that are improper to walking in love, then these are the things that are out of place to walking in love. And so he says then, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. You know, I I wrestle with this because I I think the emphasis here is again on mainly on sexual talk, sexual innuendo, um, filthy speech, crude speech. But I also think what fits into this category is what we would call bathroom humor. And it's not just about what we say, but it's about what we listen to. Do you know that I find that the, the place that you find this most often is in modern day comedy? It's in modern day sitcoms. Where, where it's a filthy mouth, it's a crude mouth, it's, 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 it's taking sexual issues and, and expanding them, it's taking bathroom humor and developing it. That, that is the way that, that this is most propagated, and yet I'm shocked at what I sometimes catch myself listening to, what I hear people talking about, you should go to this show, you should go to that show, you should watch this, and it's full of filthy talk and coarse jesting and these sorts of things, which he says they are out of place. They are not conducive to walking in love. He says, rather, there should be thanksgiving. Which sounds odd, but what are we thankful for? We're thankful for the the healthy marriages that God has designed. We're thankful for the way that God has designed sexual pleasure for marriage. We're we're thankful for, for the things that God has given us. And so thankfulness should replace this filthiness, this foolish talk, this crude jesting that takes place. And so he says that is contrary to what it means to walk in love. And it gets harder, loved ones. Things that you may be sure of. Things that are out of place. Things that are improper. Things that you may be sure of. For you may be sure of this. That everyone who is sexually immoral, impure, or is covetous, that is idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. See, here we come face to face with the dangers of sin. These are difficult words at the best of times. That's the last thing I wanted to do was show up this morning and talk about this kind of stuff. But this is the kind of stuff that talks about our holiness. We, we sang that, did we not? Refiner's fire. Make me holy and pure within. Well, this is the stuff of the refiner's fire working in our hearts and in our lives. We can't ignore these things. And Paul is bringing back two realities again. He's saying there are people that walk this way, 
the, it's the walk of the Gentiles, and it, will, it ends in exclusion from the kingdom of God. It, it, it ends with the wrath of God upon you. And then there's this way of walking worthy of the God who has called you, walking in love, which excludes that. And so he's saying, why is there a conflicting th- taking place? So he's, he's saying here that we need to grasp the seriousness, seriousness of sin. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Of God, those who practice such things. And then he drives it home further and he says, be careful about those who deceive you. He warns about anyone that comes along and tells you, and you know, I have sat under this teaching. I have read books that describe this sort of thing. And you have people that come along and and they are so full of the grace of God They're so full of justification, which is the way that God, when you become a Christian, God justifies us. He makes us right. It's like we have never sinned. It's like there is nothing against us. It's like he sees us as his son, Jesus Christ, pure and perfect. And so they, they, they say that, well, that has already happened. So our sins, past, present, and future, have been dealt with. So it matters no longer how you live. You can sin if you like to sin, but that's forgiven in God. You can get drunk if you want to get drunk. That doesn't matter. It's forgiven in God. And they teach this stuff. It's deception. It's lies. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 6? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace might increase? No. Thank you. Thank you for breaking that awkward silence. <laughs> no. That's what Paul says. No. We, we should by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? See, we recognize what God has done for us. We're new creatures. We're born again. How can we continue in sin? That sin nature is now dead. It's cut off. It's no longer part of our life. And so he says, Do you not know that those of us who have been baptized in Christ were baptized in his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So if anyone comes along and tells you that grace gives you license to sin, they are deceiving you. And there's another spot where he talks about that a little more clearly. Not Paul, but uh, Jude. And he says in um, 3, 4, Beloved. There it is again. Beloved. Beloved. Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And then notice this. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. Where have they crept into? They've crept into the church. They've crept into the family of God. They've, 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 they've crept into the body of Christ. Ungodly people. And then this is what he said. Who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. There it is again. It doesn't matter how you live. You are now saved. So you can flaunt your sexuality. You can, you can, the sexual limits are wide open. And they deny our master and our Lord Jesus Christ. Be careful, loved ones. Let nobody deceive you into thinking that sin is ever something that is okay before God. And then the final thing that he says there, he says, on these things, on the sons of disobedience, the wrath of God falls. 
And it's, it's in the present tense, the wrath of God comes. So it's not just the wrath of God that comes with the final judgment, and that is coming. There is a day when God is going to come back and the judgments will take place. But the wrath of God is also a present reality. That's what Romans chapter 1 verses 18 tells us, is that the wrath of God from heaven is revealed, and as people persist to walk away from God, God says, okay, he gives them up to their minds, he gives them up to their sensuality, he gives them up to their evil practices, and they reap the rewards of sinful behaviors. And so he says, he says upon those who practice such things, the wrath of God comes. We need to hear such things. Is not our age an age that's characterized by immorality and greed? We live in a culture that's immersed in immorality and greed. And the spiritual warning signs blare from so many directions, but in, a, in, in an apparent sensory overload, we grow more blind and deaf to the seriousness, to the pervasiveness, to the destructiveness of our indulgence. And I couldn't shake this illustration that I read this past week in Brian Chapel, which sort of brings all this together. He says, in an airport recently, I watched as a woman walk down a concourse toward a passenger transport cart approaching from the opposite direction. You've seen those, those little carts that are annoying. They've got those little blue lights and people ride in them and they, they drive down through the airport. So he's watching this happen. And uh, the cart had a flashing light, a loud beeper warning of its approach and was full of people. Yet the woman kept walking on a direct collision course. Finally, the driver slammed on the brakes and still the woman walked into the cart. She was not blind or deaf, or deranged. I learned from others that drivers of these carts are trained to deal with persons such as this woman. In a busy airport, the senses of such persons can become so overloaded by all the warnings and alarms that the singles, signals are no longer processed in the brain. Evidence grows that we increasingly are such people. The reports about the consequences of sexual sin and materialistic greed in our culture are shouting their warning to us, yet at the same time, we continue to expose ourselves and our children to sinful entertainments and materialistic priorities with fewer pangs of conscience. He goes on, but that's probably enough for us to hear. In other words, loved ones, we need to be careful that we do not become desensitized by all the warnings, by all the whistles, by all the bells that God in our conscience and God in our culture is setting off in our minds. Finally, embrace your reality. How do, how do we work it all together? He says, embrace your identity. You're a child of God. Follow the child of God. Then he gives us these warnings, things that are out of place, things that are improper, things that you become sure of. And now he says once again, he brings it all back and he says, embrace your identity. What's our identity? Well, he says, therefore, do not become partners with them. Who's the them? The them is the sons of disobedience. What does it mean to become a partner with them? Well, it's a, it's a word, and I, I think it's, it's a right word. Some use associate. I don't think that's the right word, because if it, it's associate, then it means we should never associate with the people of the world. But the Bible is very clear that we are to associate with the people of the world. And I am so thankful that in this congregation, day in, day out, many of you are rubbing shoulders, and you are, you are rubbing shoulders with the people of this world. How else will they ever know Jesus? How else will they ever know the gospel? But he says, do not become partners with them. Do not participate with them. Do not join in with them. Do not partake with them. 
In other words, don't become like them. Associate with them, but walk in love, walk in light. And he says, at one time you are darkness, but now you are light. You are different. You are a dearly loved child of God. There's a change that has taken place in your life. And so walk as a child of God. Walk as the child of God. That will mean there are some things that are no longer proper. That will mean that there are some things that are now out of place in our conversations, in our behavior. That will mean that we need to keep in mind that there are some things that we can be sure of. But we need to be remembered that we are now children of light. We are his dearly loved children, his saints. We should live that way.